Hey, hey, we are back with the premiere of our next chapter. Before we get into it, I want to tell you about Shaker and Spoon. Shaker and Spoon is a subscription cocktail service that helps you learn how to make handcrafted cocktails right at home. We are living through, let's say, the golden age of very small parties, uh, if not much else, and I feel like a nice fancy cocktail is great for that type of setting. Or maybe you just want to treat yourself or your partner to the type of thing you would go out for in the before times. Well, Shaker and Spoon has you covered. Every box comes with enough ingredients to make three different cocktail recipes developed by world-class mixologists. All you need to do is buy one bottle of that month's spirit, and you have all you need to make 12 drinks at home. At just $40 to $50 per month, plus the cost of the bottle, it's a super cost-effective way to enjoy craft cocktails, and you can skip or cancel boxes anytime. And you can get $20 off your first box at shakerandspoon.com slash T-O-A-F-N with discount code FUTUREnerd. That's shakerandspoon.com slash T-O-A-F-N, discount code FUTUREnerd, all one word. A heads up, today's episode has some heavy stuff in it, so check the content notes in the episode description if you want specifics. And that's all I got. Enjoy our new episode, and we'll be back with the next new episode on July 31st. Once and Future Nerd, Book 2, Myth Made Flesh. Chapter 8, A Change of Scenery. Part 1 by Christian T. Kelly Madeira, Zach Glass, and Gregory M. Schultz. We now rejoin the Red Reaver which, having deposited four of her passengers on the sugarcane archipelago, is presently nearing the end of her return journey to the mainland. Given all that had come before, the journey was mercifully uneventful, if understandably a bit melancholy for our party of heroes. Regan, wounded arms and all, was grateful to be reunited with the vial of medicine she herself had stolen barely a month ago. And though it did wonders for the pain of her injuries, she continued to consume vast quantities of rum. Several times, Nelson contemplated sharing with Billy and Jen what he discussed with Nia and her parents, but he could not fathom how to begin the conversation. Just under two days after she had dropped anchor on the southwest tip of the archipelago, the Red Reaver dropped anchor yet again, this time half a mile offshore from the northern coast of Jordan. And an hour or so later, two small rowboats came to dock in a busy harbour town, which was loyal to House Mooncrest. These boats, of course, bore seven admittedly unlikely rebel warriors, with whom you're already very familiar, one very small infant, and one very large Alf Firebeard. Said Alf made the requisite seedy back alley introductions, and then departed post-haste. So, let me get this straight. Your crew stole the White Lady. The real White Lady. The real fucking deal. Regan and Brennan were sat in a corner booth of a tavern, miles away from the tavern where they first met, but no safer or cleaner. Across from them was a wiry man with a sharp face, made to seem even sharper by his thin moustache. 
dust and grit seemed to surround him like flies surrounding a pig in summer. This man was called Vanderberg, and he... Sorry, brief diversion, if I may. When a tree sprite decides what they would like to be called, it is a deeply personal decision, which leads to an entirely unique name. I have one friend who is called the feeling you get from an unexpected boon after a string of poor luck, and another one who is called the taste of a berry which is precisely ripe enough but not a second more ripe than that. Vanderberg, on the other hand, comes from a sister tongue of the one which became common throughout Eastern Jordan, and in that tongue, Vanderberg means from the town, which tells me, let's see, precisely nothing about someone. Why bother even having a name if you're just going to call yourself from the town? Why not just save some breath and just be called man? Anyway, where were we? And you don't have it with you. Be a fool if I did. But you'll tell me where it is if my crew gets your crew over the mountains. That's the offer. Okay. Then why should I believe a word of that? Regan nodded to Brennan, who carefully held up two empty hands to Vanderberg, and then slowly reached one down below the table and produced a thick, finely bound tome. What's that supposed to be? On the totemic traditions of primitive Jordan. Vanderberg tilted his head, as if prompting Brennan to continue. It was in the private collection of Lord Professor Blueulabottle. That's his mark in the margins there. And if you took this meeting with us, then you already checked up on the white lady getting stolen. If you did that, then you know that collection is where it was hiding all those years. Vanderberg paused, flattening his moustache with two fingers and stroking the stubble on his chin. Just walk me through this. How'd you pull off the heights of the century and why'd you send your spoils away? What's it matter how we did it? It matters, so I know you don't think I'm an idiot. Fine. Dumb luck, honestly. We weren't looking for the lady. Someone wanted a book stolen from the collection. We had no idea it was there. But presumably they did. So, how'd you get in? We got a dropout from the college in our crew, so she knew her way around. We sent in a mage, a heavy, and a lorist. What kind of mage? Regan and Brennan briefly exchanged a glance. A storm mage. Vanderberg cocked an eyebrow, but did not interrupt. The mage and the heavy took care of the guards, and the lorist went for their collection. That's when they saw the damn thing. As soon as we realized what we had, we sent someone away while the rest stayed behind to finish the original job. But we hit a snag. Had to split real quick. So, now we're here. So, you got busted trying to fence a book after you'd already stolen something worth a thousand times more. <sighs> yeah, I reckon that's stupid enough to be true. Let's giddy up. By steer-pulled wagon, it was nearly a week's bumpy ride to the foot of the Black Mountains. Our hero's new chauffeurs knew how to maneuver around most of the highway garrisons along the way, but rough terrain in the foothills made the westernmost one unavoidable. Damn it! There's a turnpike coming up here that we can't get around. If you want to get through, you better shut that thing up one way or another.
That didn't help. Jen, the device you carry. Lady Arlene said she captured a lullaby with it. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, there it is. There's some elves sniffing around too. Whichever one of you is a storm mage, be just swell if you wanted to send some wind back towards where we came. We'll have to stop at the pike, then once we start moving again, switch it around so it comes up behind us. Jen did as Vanderberg suggested, and in this way were the elves avoided. We return for a moment to a structure in the White Forest, where one might seek medical attention. We've been here before, but at that time we found ourselves in the main wing of the structure, where elves and their most esteemed guests would go. At this time, though, I must take you to another, smaller wing. You might call it an annex. It was here that the other, less frequently spoke of residents of the White Forest might seek help should some urgent need arise. That is where we join a rather unpleasant conversation already underway. Some part of the body or another just uh, grows in a way it shouldn't. We don't know why it happens, unfortunately, but it does seem to afflict a certain number of your kind with some regularity. Is there any cure? There are treatments that can meaningfully prolong life, but the cost is great, I'm afraid. Typically out of reach for one of your station. Unless your patrons were to take a particular interest... Master Bart, bless him, he's already taken everything he's budgeted for the livery and sending it to my family. Those are the terms of my servitude. I'm sure your family would understand if there were a momentary... With respect, uh, Doctor. It's not a matter of them understanding. It's a matter of them eating. Well, perhaps Bartlewheel might be willing to part with more, given the extenuating circumstances. Perhaps. No harm in asking. There's always harm in asking. A girl? Girl? moment of your time, if you please. The sun had only just gone down over Maeve Bailey's Inn, and already the establishment was nearly at capacity. This was good news for its proprietor, for her coffers, yes, but also because it diverted attention from the private conversation she was having with the hooded officer from Freehold who was sat at the bar. Any news from your sisters? Quite a bit. Molly says elf patrols have been looking around the orphanages, but she's not sure for what. And Minnie says she's been selling lots of knives and cheap half-swords all of a sudden. Most of them to young women who can't seem to look her in the eyes. Many of them with babes in arms, and nearly all have to pay by barter. I see. But here's what gives me pause. Minnie made me promise I'd not say a word to Molly before she gave me any details. Molly's a bit too chummy with the city guard, if you ask her, and she was scared of trouble finding her customers. 
I think she was scared for herself as well. And she feared trouble because she suspected her new customers were fugitives from the elves somehow? I think she suspected they were, you know, from the West. I'm reading between the words, but she says she got a good look at one and made a point of mentioning her striking eyes. She thinks they're living in secret in Armstrongard. Wouldn't someone notice? You'd know better than I. What do the chieftain Traft look like? <sighs> I suppose not all that different. But why, though? Why are they in Armstrongard? People who follow battles often flee battles. We always assumed their kind would flee back the way they came, but I imagine when your side loses, you flee whichever way seems safer. Yeah, true enough. Those two serving girls Bryce brought me. They found an orphaned babe, you know. Human, I assumed, because why wouldn't it be? But Rilo Teet seemed awfully curious about the little critter. Hmm. The officer downed the contents of his mug, uncharacteristically swiftly for a man of his cool temperament. Oh, much obliged. You know, <laughs> Bryce was rarely in a hurry to make his heart known to you, as I'm sure you know too well. Aye, he only told you the whole truth if he was singing it. <laughs> Indeed. But I think he was uneasy sometimes with the charge of the civic guard more so the older he got you could see his shoulders slouch just a little when he was asked to quell a mining rebellion or the like and when he was younger he'd talk about justice a lot more as he got older he'd talk about oaths and duty almost like he was resigned to it but he never complained out loud to me probably because he was my superior I wonder if he ever said anything to you well, he did say something once. Woke up after a nightmare. It was odd somehow, so it stuck with me. Not his exact words, but... He said, when you're young, it's easy to imagine a better world. And then you get your heart broken pushing for it again and again. At first you get angry, till it feels like you'll explode. So you abandon the better world, little by little, piece by piece just so you can get through the day without your anger. <laughs> without your anger poisoning you to death. Those were his exact words. And eventually you convince yourself that the younger you was naive. But really, younger you was right. And you just lost the guts to stay angry. And then he looked at me like he was about to cry. And said, One day a chance really will come for a better world. If I'm alive to see it. I just hope I'll have the guts to take it. I just stared at him until he said he was overworked and halfway to a hangover and to ignore him. I'd never quite seen him like that. Right. I think I need a refill. Our tale now returns to General Traft. As you will recall, Traft found himself in the company of Arden the Annihilator and General Maguire, as well as a few former members of Traft's own army lost in the east after the army was routed. The group now sought a route underneath the Black Mountains. We join them as they travel in comfortable, companionable silence. Ah. 
Okay, fine. The silence was fairly awkward. I mean, you can't blame them, though. How can you make small talk with a being who died centuries before you were born? So tell me, young man. When you led the people over these mountains to repel the invaders... At the beginning of the word invaders, Maguire glanced back at Arden, who looked up from the large haunch of... something that he was gnawing at, the beginnings of rage glinting in his eye. Maguire quickly censored himself. Uh, that is the E-L-V-E-S. What was your plan? Well... Things have changed a bit since you were um, among living, I suppose. The L, uh, the, uh, the the folks you mentioned weren't the uh, initial target. They weren't. No, no. You, you see, these days the people in the east outnumber the, uh, uh, shall we say, heel yet? Invaders, speech must be invaders. Two arms. Ah, don't use their language around our friend here. Arden, calm down. Our new friend made a mistake. They aren't here. Have some more meat. We must say, though, Traft. I'm somewhat surprised to hear you use their language. Well, feels hard to avoid sometimes, but anyway, uh, the folks out east outnumber them 10, maybe 15 to 1, and yet they always fight for them and against us. Hundreds of them at a time even volunteer to hold forts where we might enter. Even in my time, there were selfish and cowardly men who collaborated. But now it's the only thing they know. They think the only way they're safe is under the thumb of you-know-who. I thought if I showed them they weren't so safe after all, they'd realize what a raw deal they were getting. I see. It was then this cohort reached a branching section of the cave. It was in fact the sixth one they had come to today, though admittedly they were struggling to keep track of the time in the utter absence of sunlight. Uh, this one? You know, I'm starting to have doubts about this little expedition. Doubts? Young one, ye lack faith. Arden, you know you probably think... Shield here. Well, I understand the shield is in these caves, but clearly it isn't here. You know, perhaps we can take a rest before aimlessly trudging forward. Don't you agree, friends? Their western-born companions nodded vigorously. <sighs> Fine. I suppose your bodies need more rest. Arden, perhaps the young war chief is right. Is there a good place we can rest for a while? Their torchlight was not bright enough to see Traft's eyes roll. Arden didn't add anything else to the conversation, but after another 50 feet of trudging, he held out an arm towards a narrow side passage. The weary Urkiet rushed forward and collapsed towards the back of the cave. Thank you, kindly. Don't be getting too comfortable here. We should continue the search before too long. Yeah. Yeah, just a, a moment to rest our legs. Though Traft and his companions had no way of knowing this, it was in fact just before dawn. And just a few miles to the east of Traft and the others, 
Vandenberg's caravan had reached terrain that was impassable by wagon. All right, it's mules from here on out. I should warn you, the weather doesn't go well. Meaning? Looking like the snows come early this year, which means the way over the mountains may not be passable. There's a way under the mountains, but you don't want to take it if you can avoid it. Great. Cool, 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 cool. Mind to Moria situation. Very great and cool. Yeah, better get a move on. And back beneath the mountains, Maguire approached Arden, who stood at the entrance, surveying the larger cave network they just stepped out of. So, you have no idea where we or the shield are, do you? Bah. Just how lost have you gotten us, exactly? Shield. Here. That bad, huh? The two ancient warriors stood in silence for a while, willing the darkness to present any valuable information. But nothing presented itself. Listen, Arden. Maybe it's time we... At the sound of yelling from the back of the cave, Arden and Traft drew their weapons to face the coming danger, but they were met only with their companions hooting and hollering while holding up something in their hands. What is it? What happened? The Westerners came over and slowly opened their hands to reveal four small gold coins. Gulda, Gulda. <laughs> what? Well, how... Where did these come from? The orcs joyfully pointed towards the back of the cave. As the party waved their torches into the darkness, the promise of more gold coins glimmered back to them. The orcs rushed forwards to find them. Lad, let me see one of them. Having recently found another boon of coins, both orcs threw their first coins back towards their compatriots. Arden and Traft caught one each. Arden handed his to Maguire. Let me see. Hold that torch closer. Oh, this looks to be... Well, now, there's a sight for sore eyes. I'd figured all of these coins had been collected and melted down. Well, what are they? These coins are older than Arden and I. Come from an old, old kingdom. Arden stiffened and strode toward the back of the cave with his torch held high. Well, gold still spends in our time, so no reason to leave it laying here where it isn't being used. The torchlight revealed another egress from their cave, and the two westerners rushed forward into the chamber with the promise of more gold. Ah, wait! Arden grabbed one of them by the back of the collar and stopped him dead in his tracks, but the other one evaded his grasp. Whoa, what's the problem there, big fella? Arden stalked after him, far more stealthily than Traft had ever seen him move before. No. It couldn't possibly. Possibly what? Do you know where we are? Have an idea. And if Arden and I are thinking the same thing, then we need to get our other friend back here now. Their second travel companion had by now climbed atop a veritable <laughs> hill of gold coins in the chamber. Uh, old-timer, what made these? Traft held a torch high at the back of the small cave to reveal long, old, and deep scratch marks in the wall. 
Maguire's eyes bulged, his pallor growing even paler. We need to leave this place. We need to leave this place now. Traft watched Arden finally catch up to their companion. He hefted him over his brawny shoulder and turned to face the darkness, hammer drawn. If Traft didn't know better, he'd say the ancient warrior looked a bit shaken. He peered into the dark chamber for what could possibly cause such a reaction in Arden. And then Traft became aware of a deep rumble, periodically resonating throughout the cave. His first thought, in fact, was earthquake, but when he stepped into the chamber where Arden stood, he felt the rush of warm, damp air that accompanied each pulse. The hairs on his neck stood up, and that's when he made out what lay beneath the pile of gold that Arden stood atop. An enormous, scaly claw, wider across than the warrior was tall. Arden stood deathly still, sucking in his breaths and perspiring in the torchlight. And then, one of the talons of the claw twitched. Once and Future Nerd is directed by Christian T. Kelly Madeira. It is created and executive produced by Zach Glass and Christian T. Kelly Madeira, and co-executive produced by Jess Kelly Madeira. Associate producers are Susan Degnan and Alex Story. It is performed by Rhiannon Angel, Garrett Arman, Dan Dobransky, Anya Gibeon, Ian Harkins, Shannon Harris, Aaron Lanham, Paul Notice, April Ortiz, Frank Quares, Julie Reed. Regina Renee Russell. Gregory M. Schultz. Editing by Miles Carter. Foley, sound design and post-production mixing by Edward Bush. Tom Lee is our musical director and lead composer, with additional scoring by Chris Montalbo. For more, visit onceandfuturenerd.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr or Reddit. <laughs>